0: Welcome to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kachin, and today I'm so pleased to bring you my discussion with Monique Wooder, founder of Cake Ventures. Monique has such an amazing and diverse background, as prior to starting Cake. She worked in government, acted as a scout at a tier one venture fund, was a venture partner at 500 startups where she saw thousands of companies, and co-founded Black Founders, a community of founders focused on diversity and inclusion. Monique's also invested globally, including a lot of work in Sub-Saharan Africa. This is a really fun episode as we talked about a wide range of topics, including why she started Cake Ventures versus joining a large fund, what it was like raising capital, the importance of building community and venture, and how geographies like Africa are critical to global growth. Now let's get into the episode to hear all of that and more. On the podcast, we've spoken a lot about the importance of getting fund operations right. One of those things that you must do is getting the right fund administrator. And we're pleased to have this episode brought to you by one of the best in the business in Standish Management, an employee-owned company. As the largest provider of fund admins of EC, they currently serve approximately 750 venture capital funds with over 150 billion in committed capital under admin. Standish has also been designed by experienced CFOs with a deep understanding of the service needs of both the finance departments and GPs at every stage of the product lifecycle. Standish can also handle all the needs of a finance department, so GPs can do what they do best, and that's invest and help entrepreneurs. Check them out at StandishManagement.com. Hey, Monique, it's great to have you on the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So like a lot of people that come on the show, you've had a very unique and versatile background. You were in a startup advisor, you worked in government, and then ultimately joined 500 Startups what catalyzed the journey into venture?
1: You know, I had been an entrepreneur twice. I had started companies and, you know, bootstrap companies because I was living in Florida and there was really no venture capital there at the time, unlike right now. But I moved to San Francisco and in 2008 and I started meeting all these amazing people starting really interesting companies. And I started with my friends, a community of founders. And then I started working even closer with the entrepreneurs in our community and, you know, introducing them to the VCs that I knew. And at some point, I sort of realized that I was doing the job of a VC without having the job of a VC. And so then I was like, oh, well, I should try to make my way onto the other side of the table. And that is never a straight line. It's all like, it's twisty, windy, a twisty, roundy route to get there, but and I was writing people like cold emails. I wrote a cold email to Kate Mitchell, uh, who is at Sc- you know the GP at Scale, founding partner at Scale. And I remember going up to you know some other GPS at like events, and I was just trying to get my foot in the door. And I had sort of been to some demo days for five hundred startups and uh, known Christine and Dave a little bit. And so someone from five hundred reached out and was like, "Hey, what are you up to? We just want to see like." What What's on your radar? What's in your pipeline? What entrepreneurship we be looking at? And I went in to talk to them and I said, Yeah, I'm probably going to move on to the venture side of the table. And they're like, Oh, well, tell us about that. And um, after a bunch of meetings and getting to know the team there, um, eventually they said, Well, why don't you come invest here at 500? And it was sort of, it fell into my lap a little bit, except for the fact that I was sort of, you know, trying every door that I could tap on to get into, into venture.
0: And I'm glad you brought up the fact about being a founder. I think it was in Miami too, before Miami was a thing. And that was like, what, 16, 17 years ago, very different narrative today. But the interesting thing about you joining 500 and you talking to Cicada at scale and some of the other firms is 500 employs a very different strategy, a lot of bets, see a lot of entrepreneurs. How did you make that decision of joining 500 versus a firm that does more concentrated bets at the beginning of your career?
1: I mean, I had no choice, right? It's not like, you know, (laughs) some large legacy firm was like knocking down the door to hire me, but it was a good choice. It was like, it was the right choice for me because I think the folks at 500 fit my personality a lot more than I think, you know investors who were at large firms that are not 500 right we were uh, often came from had an entrepreneur background super scrappy folks and scrappy and and fun to be around and so you know I know I got to know Jake and Sheil, who are now running better tomorrow ventures and Rebecca um, who is now at Yamaha ventures and Chris Newman who's at Commonwealth Ventures in Canada. And so got to know like a really good cohort of people. From a strategy point of view, I think that the fact that I was sort of, you know, dumped into this ecosystem where it was like, do a lot of deals, it was such a blessing because um, I was able to see so many companies all at the same time. And it is like, it was like drinking from the fire hose. But that's how you learn. And that's how I got a chance to learn a lot about what is a good deal and what is not a good deal. and What is a company that could succeed? And what does a, fa- a good founder look like? And just being able to have, you know, venture is all about getting the reps in. And the more you get the reps in, the better you get at it. And so I honestly don't think I would be sitting here as a fund manager today if I hadn't have had that you know, high volume experience at 500 startups.
0: Yeah. And I was going to ask you about that. And I, and I 100% agree with that statement. You need the reps, you need to sit down with those founders, see how you develop a pattern recognition of your own that's based on your own insights. But I also like to ask, like, when you go through that, and I don't know how many companies you ultimately met with and invested in. But what were some of those key insights that you learned from 500? whether it be on the investing side and how you wanted to invest or just generally from a philosophical view, were there things that you gleaned from those reps that now you've carried over to what you're doing now, which we'll get to in a minute?
1: I mean, I saw well over a thousand companies in my time at 500 and some of those were in the United States and some of those were global. Um, You know, I was in, in Japan helping the Japan team out for a little while. I was traveling to places like Portugal, I was in Nigeria a lot. And so one of the things that I think I took away from that is that innovation is happening everywhere, not just in Silicon Valley, right? And I think a lot of other investors tend to think in a very Silicon Valley centric sort of way. And while I'm doing a lot less global investing right now, I do believe truly that innovation is happening in so many more places than we give entrepreneurs credit for, and that there's a huge opportunity to, to support innovation wherever it is, whether that's Nigeria or Ghana or South Africa or Indonesia or other places in Southeast Asia. And I think that it's given me a lot of perspective that I can bring back to um, you know, the more U.S.-focused investing that I'm doing now. And with the, with the eye that like, look, I, I'm investing in companies that I hope can be global companies, and what do those founders need to know and be doing today to be a global company in you know seven, eight, ten years?
0: The other side of the coin that I, I do want to dive into a little bit is as you left 500, which is a decent-sized team, a lot of people on staff, to going and doing it solo, you're still seeing a lot of deals, you're managing. but now you are the, the chief cook and bottle washer, and really doing pretty much everything for cake. And we'll get, it, we'll get into that in a minute, but tell us a little bit about the adventure from going from 500 to cake. What did you see as the opportunity? And I, I love the name cake. And I know it stands for the three layers of, uh, of the cake and, and your investment philosophy itself and thesis. But tell us a little bit about cake.
1: Yeah, so I decided to leave 500 in 2018, and I didn't have a plan. Um, I had no plan. (laughs) And a lot of people were calling me once I said that I was leaving and asking me what the plan was. And I was like, I wish someone would tell me. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I knew that I wanted to stay in venture. And I knew that I wanted to keep doing deals. I kind of thought that I wanted to start a firm rather than joining another big firm. And You know, that was definitely a prospect that I wanted to take some time and and think about. I also wanted to take a little break. I wanted to rest. I had been traveling like crazy for a number of years. You know, Jeremy Liu over at Lightspeed asked me if I needed a book of business to do deals out of. And I said, yes, of course, because I had deal flow but didn't have enough personal capital to continue doing deals. And so he very, kindly asked asked me if I wanted to scout invest at Lightspeed. So I started scouting investing at Lightspeed. And I was sort of taking a look back at my portfolio and every investment tells a story, right? It tells a story about like what you believe as an investor. It tells a story about what you care about um, as an investor. And it was pretty obvious to me that I was sort of poking around the edges of this thesis around demographic changes and the way that the people are changing at the same time that technology is changing. And so I really think of demographic change as the thing that is producing a lot of the change today and it's fundamentally changing the internet user base. And I think that not enough people are are Cognizant of that, not enough people are focused on that. And so I really identified three big changes that I thought um, I could swing at and build not just a fund but a firm around for you know long-term opportunities. And you know, the first layer of the cake is this massive market around aging and delivering technology to people as they age. So it's everything from helping people age in place and not go into a retirement home or helping people. Uh, manage their retirement uh, and benefits, or even thinking about what the future of work is for someone as they get older and reach the retirement age of 65, but don't expect to actually retire. Um, The second layer of the cake is companies that will get to billion dollar outcomes based on a mostly female user base. So think Bumble's IPO recently, Um, think Peloton, which I think a lot of people are a bit surprised by, Think Noom, which is coming up for an IPO. Obviously, Glossier is is already a unicorn. There are lots of of examples, and I think that there's a lot of opportunity there in the private markets still. And then the third layer of the cake is the rise of a new majority, where people of color broadly, but primarily Asian, Latino, and African-American become the majority in the United States and are already making up a global majority. And so if you look at behavioral trends, especially in this last layer of the cake, you know, Black consumers spend more time streaming video, also streaming audio and consuming audio. And you see the rise of Clubhouse and kind of what happened when they, when they turned the spigot on for Clubhouse. And you can't deny that Black consumers are sort of moving platforms and influencing Adoption of technology. And so I think there's a ton of opportunity across all three layers of the cake.
0: Yeah, so these are based around these large structural trends that are that have happened or continuing to happen, which I would expect and presume there's a lot of different type of companies that you would invest in. And you mentioned you know being at 500, getting a lot of reps, then being a scout at Lightspeed. When you start a cake, you're also now fundraising for the first time and going out there, telling your thesis. And for a lot of folks, starting off now, they're competing with a lot of people. There's so many funds that have come to market. In many cases, the fund sizes that are smaller are structurally misaligned with the big institutions. The family offices are opaque. What was that first raise? How much thinking did you go going into the raise? And what did you find out in the early days?
1: I think I had a few things that were slight privileges, if you will, (laughs) I don't have many, but (laughs) very small privileges, is that I came out of 500 and people really were curious about what I was going to do next. And I had created somewhat of a public profile and people knew of me, they knew my name, and so they were willing to take meetings. And that was a huge benefit. Now, I think a lot of people were just curious And, you know, were more larger institutional investors who were never going to invest in a $25 million fund. But I looked at a lot of those meetings as just very necessary for me to, again, I was getting the reps in, but this time as a fund manager, right? And so I took a lot of meetings with institutions who were curious about me and what my next moves were, who were not going to invest in fund one. Um, might not even invest in fund two. Maybe they'll be my fund three or four, right? But I was okay with that. And I was okay doing kind of the work to, frankly, get the thesis as, as tight as possible, right? I started to sort of hit a stride in, in late 2019. And then all of a sudden, uh, COVID <laughs> happened. And then I was like, oh, and now I'm raising this in a pandemic. Okay.
0: And and you were starting the raise during, right, right at the time, right? When? Yeah. Yeah.
1: And so that changed everything. And, you know, of course, a lot of the people who I was talking to sort of fell off, you know, off of the, the table. And for a while, I think we were, I was at this point of like stasis. And then all of a sudden, George Floyd happened in the middle of the year. And then that changed the trajectory of different people who wanted to now talk. But I think what ultimately ended up working was that I got a handful of individual investors um, who I had been talking to for some time. Ed Zimmerman has been a longtime supporter. He was very early committed to the fund. And then I got a few GPs of other funds who committed to the fund. And then I got a few, a couple family offices. And so it just started to sort of snowball. Then I had known folks at, at family at, uh, sorry, at fund of funds who, who did emerging managers and then those funds came on board sort of late 2020. And Mm -hmm. then I did a first close and then it started to really snowball after that.
0: You're right in that a lot of things happened in the course of 2020. A year ago, I remember having so many conversations with people. This is the end of March of 2020, and everyone felt like we were going to go into this multi-year recession. And actually, a lot of the institutions were worried about their public equities, and then the denominator effect and not wanting to invest in liquid. Of course, that all changed and the pandemic. All it really did in many ways from a technology perspective is it accelerated certain trends and people understood it. And of course, the markets bounced back from your perspective. There was tailwinds and headwinds. Tailwinds in many ways were people were investing, people were interested in your story. You had certain privileges from building a brand. There's still some headwinds in that most people can't get out to the normal conferences. They can't go out and meet people in person. What did you find in the environment of being completely virtual and raising during that time? And what's the best way to, for an emerging manager, to navigate that non-institutional market if they don't have those same privileges?
1: Yeah, I think you sort of have to work with whatever you have, right? And people will tell you, like, you asked eight different people, they'll give you eight different ways to raise a fund, right? And there are a lot of ways to come at this and you have to figure out what's gonna work for you. I think what worked for me, um, I didn't know a a lot of high net worth individuals. So I knew that I was never going to raise a significantly sized fund exclusively based on high net worth individuals. So I really had to use my background and connections to get into some of those more institutional meetings. And I I did. And those converted for me. And so if I look at my list of LPs, it looks a little bit more institutional than I think most fund one emerging manager solo GPs actually (laughs) look and ultimately, that's a good thing because I think the challenge, you know, Fund 2 is always looming, right? And the challenge of having an 80% high net worth or a 70% high net worth fund in Fund 1 is that often they're not there for Fund 2 and you've got to go out to a completely new LP base. I'm constantly thinking of not just Fund 1, but Fund 2 and 3. So, you know, I think I think it might have been Charles Hudson who told me when I asked him for advice early on, he was like, you know, think of it as you're not just raising for fund one, you're raising for the first three funds and act accordingly. Right. And that's what I've done. I've taken probably more institutional meetings than, than I than I think a lot of people would suggest that I, I would have. But I think, I think of those meetings as laying the groundwork for future funds. And I never think of them as a waste of time, even if those institutional LPs do not end up in fund one.
0: I think there's a, a few layers to this because you're, you're right, first-time funds and solo GPs, when we did our analysis, this is late 2018, I don't think things have changed dramatically since then, 70% of the capital going into that first fund was non-institutional. That's average. And in most cases, it was 100%, right? And usually the exceptions to the rule were you know somebody that spun off an existing shop had some experience, had a track record of investing you know, at a certain stage with some level of success. And a lot of people look at that and say, okay, well, getting in front of the institutionals, they're not going to come into fund one, may not come into fund two. So I'm going to over-index on those high net worth individuals and in family offices, really opaque market. But tell us a little bit about those institutional meetings, because I always find those really helpful in institutionalizing yourself when you think about your own infrastructure, as you think about your refining your story, your portfolio construction, did you find that to be the case in, in your raise? And what did you kind of learn that in the differences between pitching institutions and those family offices?
1: Yeah, I actually found it incredibly helpful to getting the data room buttoned up to getting the materials actually getting those polished and good, and getting comfortable with talking to institutions, which is a totally different conversation than you're often having with individuals for sure, but sometimes even family offices. Um kind of getting the hard questions around portfolio construction. And look, even getting the hard questions around me as the fund manager, because I'm a solo GP, emerging fund manager, so fund one. And you know, I would go and I remember very clearly, I went into one very large institution's office, and they kindly took a meeting. And, you know, I kind of went through my pitch. And at the end, he goes, (laughs) he goes, so let's be honest, you're, you're kind of a rare, a rare person in venture. (laughs) And what he really meant was, you're a black woman who has a track record, who is really well known, Why are you here starting like on your knees, slogging through the dust to get to a fun one? Why not just go to some firm who would love to have you (laughs) and like be there, you know, be their diversity hire or whatever. And, you know, it was sort of post me too and post a lot of those things where a lot of firms were hiring their first woman partner. And I had done like three meetings that day. It was, it was not in San Francisco. I had flown to the East Coast for this. And so I had stacked up these meetings and like it was like the last meeting of the day. And I was like, you know, that is a very good question.
0: <laughs> well, it is a good question because in some ways the ease and, and I'm assuming given to your 500 experience, all the reps you got and all the tailwinds that you had personally, there were likely, unlike, you know, when you started with 500, there were probably other options on the table. What was that decision like because I know you took some time off and thought about it I'm sure that was one of the alternatives and that's the opportunity cost of not joining an established firm not going through the slog of fundraising why did you decide to go down the solar GP and start your own firm versus joining
1: I think I really saw this this thesis and it was something that I couldn't get out of my head and I saw it as something that needed its own space to to live and to breathe and I think Look, there are a lot of great firms out there, but I think it was it was exciting to me to be able to give this thesis the room to grow and also to create a very new culture in a very new venture firm, right? And so the ability to set culture was was one of the things that was really important to me rather than walking into someone else's culture and just having to sort of adapt. Is it much harder? Yes. Have I spent a ton of money to be able to have the privilege to raise a fund one? Yes. <laughs> Would I be, you know, in much better shape if I had joined some firm and and pulled down a large salary and you know gotten into some great deals? Yes. But I do believe that, you know, I'm starting a firm that can be a legacy in the space. And that is exciting. And, and as an entrepreneur, like, it was always going to happen, right? <laughs> it was just a matter of like, does it happen now? Or after I spend a few years at some other, fr- other fund? I just decided to short circuit what was inevitable, and go straight for the thing that was um, on the horizon.
0: It's a great story. And congrats on the um, success in terms of getting the fund closed. And, It's always great to have people like yourself with a very centered thesis to invest in these founders that are creating great companies. Now, going back to what we talked about earlier, you are a solo GP. You're not part of a partnership. Management fees are limited. There's only so much you can do in terms of hiring. How do you punch above your weight? You think about sourcing, you think about winning companies, the post-investment help. And then all of the other things that you have to do in terms of operating the firm,
1: how do you think
0: about s- spending your time and what are some of the tactics you use to act as a much bigger entity than a single GP?
1: That is one of the challenges of being a, a single GP is that there is always so much to do, right? And so, you know, the first order of business is is investing in new companies and also taking care of the portfolio. And so I really lean on, um, my network, I, again, one of the great things is that I have a big and broad network and li- being able to lean into that network that I've created is invaluable. I mean, I probably talked to someone that I worked with at 500 startups once a day, <laughs> um. We we have a very uh, rapid uh, state of communication flow. And so that's been a huge benefit, I think, not just to me, but to the founders in the portfolio, because I can reach out to someone and say, hey, they need X, Y, Z. And that's not really my expertise. Can you help? Right. And it's everything from sales to do you know this investor and vice versa? You know, they they do the same things, you know. Uh, in my direction. And so I think like having that kind of a network and and people who support you in that way is super valuable. And I also think, you know, one of the things that uh, is important is, is getting into the best deals possible. And I think that uh, having a very clear thesis means that people know what to, what to send me. Um, one of the things that we've also done is be really intentional about putting out insights reports. We wrote a report called Gray New World um, last year, which is all about the aging market and where I see the big opportunities. And that's something that's continuing. Um, I'm in the middle of writing a new report on um, the second layer of the cake. And so those sorts of things are sort of evergreen and continue to deliver, not just when they're released, but over months and months. right? And using those sort of hacks, I guess, uh, or strategies is really the way that I think about scaling myself as a solo GP. But then also, you know, obviously I'm looking toward the tail end of fund one and, you know, starting to go out for fund two and thinking about what the future of, of Cake Ventures looks like from a team perspective. And one of the things that I'm building is, you know, not just a fund, but a firm. And so thinking about, who is a good fit to, you know, be another investor on the team? And how do we go from 25 million to 50 million to 75 to 100 million, right? And continue to, to grow and to scale in the, our abilities.
0: I was going to ask you about that in terms of how you think about adding to the team, what are the trigger points? And we've talked a little, a little bit about the challenges of being a solo GP in terms of how you spend your time. And Needing to be efficient, uh, which in today's world, luckily, with the virtual environment we're in, we can be more efficient because we're spending less time in cars. That is subject to change at some point. But as a solo GP, it's also great for founders because you are the ones make you're the one making a decision. There's not this long process, so you have the advantage of speed on your side. I think in many cases, and what you described as having this community around you to fill in some of the gaps and allow you to scale. But at what point do you think it's necessary to bring? Is it a function of the number of companies that you're working on, the number of funds, the size of AUM? How do you think about that? Because a lot of people ask me the question of, hey, I'm a solo GP. It's really hard. Now we're growing. How should I think about adding somebody and when is the right time?
1: By the time this comes out, we'll have done probably three closes on fund one. We're doing rolling closes. And so I think about bringing someone on to fund one at the end of the fundraise. So at the at the final point. And I think that's the right time because we will have enough portfolio companies who will need support from another investor, enough sort of deal flow such that, you know, I don't have to be the one doing every single first meeting. As you scale AUM is, is obviously like, one of the key things that scaling AUM is the thing that keeps you or, or helps you grow. And then, you know, how many how many deals do you want to look at and how many deals, um, you know, do you want to do in that fund? And so understanding what the fund mechanics are and understanding that if you bring on another person, that you can just see more deals. Right. And hopefully get into more great companies and that they'll also bring a different perspective. So I think it's it's great that there are people outside of the firm that I can go to for bouncing ideas off of. But I think having someone who is virtually next to you, um, even if not physically, is really invaluable because, you know, they'll come with different ideas, different perspectives on technology, something I haven't thought about, a different way of thinking about a market. So I think those two things are, are just so valuable.
0: Of course, the uh, the challenge is finding the right person that aligns with the cultural model of the firm, the type of thesis, and it can take some time. I um, wanted to maybe zoom out for a second and think about emerging VC. And we've been tracking it for a long time. And for me in particular, it's about 11 years now. And I've seen the fragmentation. I've seen the diversification. You touched on this earlier, all these different regions that have great entrepreneurial activity, whether it be sub-Saharan Africa, you know, Europe, Latin America, certainly all across the U.S., including um, Miami, which of course is uh, is definitely uh, at the top of VC Twitter right now. But what do you see as the future of like the seed ecosystem in, in particular, specifically as you think about you know the solo GPS, you think about region specific. And really, more diverse managers coming to market. How do you see this the next few years playing out?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we're in a really interesting time. There are a few different things that are happening. One, you're sort of seeing that small nano funds are just sort of easier to stand up today, and so that's um, created more diversity, I think, in the in the seed market, seed at seed and pre-seed. Rolling funds have been, you know, a real innovation in, in fund structure. And I think we're going to start to see, we're, we're, we'll see even more of that, right? So we'll see more of these rolling funds start that are solo or operator funds. And then we're also seeing at the same time, large firms start seed funds. So Index Ventures just you know started uh, just you know launched a new seed fund uh, just last week and I think that is also going to continue happening like you'll see large firms pushing down into the seed market but I think if you just had those two data points um, you would think that smaller seed funds are in trouble but I actually think they're really well positioned because at the same time you're seeing founders, really sort of wait to go after institutional capital in a lot of cases, almost optimize for those smaller operators, lots of angels in around. And I think that's given solo GPs, solo capitalists, operator funds, all of these people a lot of opportunity to sort of punch above their weight class and deliver more than you know you would expect their check size to deliver. And so I think we're in a really interesting time period where there's just so much capital in the market and there are so many ways to deploy it that there's a lot of founder choice that that is available. And I think that's net good, net positive for the ecosystem. I also think that even though there's a ton of capital in the market, there are also just a ton of startups who should be getting funded. And I think that even if we put more capital into the market, you know, it's not going to fund every single startup. So I, I'm very bullish on, on where we are right now as an industry, as an ecosystem. And I'm excited to see sort of what new innovation comes out of it.
0: You hear about the top line valuations and how all these companies are achieving these billion or multi-billion dollar valuations, but it's still a small percentage of the companies. Actually, most founders struggle to raise capital still. And it's not necessarily what media mainstream would lead you to believe. But we are in a very, very interesting point in the innovation life cycle. You know, I've been through two cycles. I was through 99 and 2000, when you had less than 300 million people on the internet at dial-up speeds. And then in 08, 09, the iPhone wasn't really even a thing. And then ultimately now you have technology adoption across every vertical across the world. And, and I do think that given all that, the actual funding of companies and the venture industry is actually quite small relative to other asset categories, but it has an outsized impact on job creation and overall economic expansion. So I totally agree. I'm, I'm very, very excited about the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. There'll be market cycles and things happen as supply and, and demand and, and capital markets change. But I completely agree with you. So I wanted to go to our final segment, which is our heat check. And the first question I have you, for you is between your experience at 500 to being a scout at Lightspeed to now at Cake, what is your biggest learning as an investor so far?
1: Take this with a grain of salt. I mean, I think that having conviction in a company and being too focused on price was probably one of my biggest mistakes early. You know, I say that as, price, as valuations are, you know, incredibly high at, at the current moment. And then on the flip side of that, I would say for founders, you know, these are, these are very long relationships. So the firm that gives you the highest valuation may not the be, be the best long-term partner. So I think it's, it's up to both sides to come to some middle ground where if, if I like to deal at, at 10, why don't I like it at 20? I probably should and do and believe if I truly believe that this can be a category defining company and that I'm getting in fairly early, you know, I shouldn't be too worried about price.
0: It's one of those things that I've also seen. You don't want to be overly prescriptive and say, this is the top end of my valuation, regardless of my conviction in the founder, in the company, in the market. But at the same time, you don't want to build an entire portfolio where you've gone to valuation drift where you're owning nothing of the companies because then the fund math just becomes too tough. You mentioned one of your learnings and maybe a a mistake. Invariably, when you see so many companies, you're going to miss on certain companies. You're going to see them and you you pass. And then later on, you look at it and say, well, maybe I passed for a good reason. But there's other times where you said I passed. and I actually learned a good lesson from it. Did you have a company or two that you look back on and said, Hey, this was a category defining company or a great company. I missed on it. And I missed on it on something now that I've learned that I wouldn't do make the same mistake again.
1: Yeah, I would I would definitely put Flutterwave in that category. I didn't feel that we could write a big enough check for the evaluation that they were at when um, we saw the deal come out of YC. Now we should have just done the check size we we could have done and at the at that valuation um, because it's gone on to be a great company and, and one of Nigeria's really breakout firm companies. Um, and so I think that's where I learned the lesson that I just told you about.
0: <laughs> Having been in the business for a long time and talked to so many people, everybody has that. In hindsight, it's easy to say, hey, look, I should have done that. For me, I've, I've always looked at those anti-portfolios and said, not necessarily who you missed on it's did you learn anything from that miss and it sounds like when you have conviction go all in don't worry as much about the the valuation if you can justify the potential upside right i guess my final question is related to everyone i've talked to has somebody that is their sherpa or mentor or a group of people that have provided inspiration do you have somebody in the investor community that you aspire toward, you look at, and you really have learned a ton from? Who is it and, and why has this person been so impactful for you?
1: I've been lucky to meet some really great investors and, and just be impressed by, I'm just impressed by sort of the intellectual firepower in, in our industry in general. I would say the person that is closest to, you know, a Sherpa or guide for me is Kate Mitchell. So um, who is the founding partner at scale, you know, she's also on the chair, she was chair of the National Venture Capital Association. Um, And we became close when I was at 500 Startups. And um, after I left, we became even closer. And she was one of the first um, to commit to Cake Ventures as an LP. Um, And she has provided advice on so many things from, you know, board service to challenging issues during acquisitions to how do you deal with LP pitching she's introduced me to LPs and she's just been you know an amazing person to to learn from so i would say that she's definitely the the number one sherpa in my life and i mentioned charles hudson earlier he's you know i've known charles basically my entire time in in the bay area and he's always someone that his intellectual firepower is just visible um, so he's one certainly Gary tan I look at at initialized and, and think about what he's been able to build so there are so many amazing people in this industry that you can learn from if you're just willing to sort of open your eyes and ears
0: well it's great to have a circle of sherpas and you mentioned Gary who I think their firm has had a pretty good week from what, I, what I've heard <laughs> uh, with Coinbase. And, that, and it actually speaks to the opportunity with emerging managers. I mean, that was, I think, a 7 or $10 million fund that ultimately, based on one investment, will return a couple billion dollars to LPs. And it's very difficult to get that type of performance, even close, even a fraction of it in other assets. I'm extremely excited for the industry. I'm excited about technology and certainly excited about your journey and excited to stay close to it. So I, uh, again, Monique, uh, this is a lot of fun. Appreciate you being on the show and uh, look forward to uh, continuing the dialogue.
1: Definitely, thank you for having me. This is fun.
0: Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed this episode with Monique. To learn more about her and Kate Ventures, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you'll find detailed notes from the show. While you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlock episode as soon as it's released.